Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Scuttle Blurb Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Dave, here with my co-host Aaron Salen from Marion Road Capital. We got some good feedback from the first episode. There are a few points um, I want to make. First, given the meandering nature of our conversations, one suggestion was that I start off the podcast with a quick outline of what you guys are getting into. So the general structure of these podcasts going forward is that we'll spend maybe 50-60% of the time talking through a couple of stocks, and then we'll use uh, the balance to discuss something related to investing, whether that be accounting, valuations, process, whatever. So in the conversation that we recorded for this episode, we talk about Dow DuPont and Rocky Brand. So those are the stocks. And then we get into some general investing stuff towards the end. Uh, The second point is that in the first podcast, I think Aaron and I inadvertently slipped into stock pitch mode, and that's not something, or that's something we want to avoid. So we're really trying to have a conversation about stocks in an exploratory way and not trying to sell you on ideas. So with that, um, before we begin, a disclaimer, this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for any investment decision. Nothing you hear is an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any security. The securities discussed on this podcast may be owned by persons being interviewed. Before making any investment decision, please consult an investment advisor. Either everyone here is just incredibly loaded or just living well beyond their means. Right. You know? And it's just like the same thing. It's like giving off this image instead of like like doing something that actually like creates value, you know? Yeah, you don't see a lot of that in Portland, as you can imagine. Yeah. I think the people here are more into uh, craft beer and working out and cycling. Lots of cyclists out here, it seems. Yeah. Yeah, they uh, they gear up in spandex like they're about to race the Tour de France. Most of these guys <laughs> certainly aren't performing at the level where aerodynamic concerns are relevant. I think it's mostly posturing. Yeah. I was like talking to a friend about this uh, last month. I was jogging up Mount Tabor with baby Luna in the stroller. And there's this dude just spandexed from neck to thigh, shades on, zooming downhill as fast as he can manage, just like screaming at the top of his lungs like he's <laughs> like he's just like at the absolute peak of human performance, um, going downhill, <laughs> pedestrians everywhere. <laughs> yeah, man. So what's new? How's, uh, how's everything going? It's going all right. Um, just been brutalizing myself here with Dow DuPont. I've been chipping away at this thing for the last week or so. I don't know shit about plastics or agriculture. Yeah. So much mental damage that goes into that, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So just faking it like always. I think I'm going to split this thing into two parts. I think that Tryon and Third Point might say you should break this into six parts. (laughs) (laughs) I think as as standalone entities, each... um, each part can be more focused and uh... <laughs> don't dilute the value of each paragraph by exactly, combining them exactly. together. So yeah. Uh, so first part that just talks about their past, the separate companies, second part that talks about um, their future. And I don't know, I, th- I feel like the t- a tough part with a write-up like this. Well, in general, like if you, if you want to write something that people will read, it seems like you basically need to, you know, either explain how something works and, or, you know, tell a story. Yeah. And you have to have the right level of detail as you do it. But that's hard to do with like a name like this, where there's just so many different business units doing so many different things. And the temptation is just to 
give like a dry recitation of business descriptions, you know? What do you think the strategy is? Just just focus on the core business lines and just try to know those as well as you can? I mean, the biggest part of Dow's and DuPont's profits on a standalone basis basically comes from plastics and agriculture technology. Right. So mainly focused on those, but I mean, they're involved in all kinds of shit. One of the things that struck me about this combined company is just how prevalent their products are. I mean, they're found in everything from like food to shampoo to the bottle that holds the shampoo, laundry detergent, yeah, um, like the insulation in the wall. And we don't even like spend a minute of the day considering how these products touch our lives. It's just kind of all in the background. Yeah. Whatever. And so, and you know, even as they split up into these three separate entities in the next five or six months, two of those three entities are still arguably like mini conglomerates that could be split up even further like DuPont's protection solutions business. So that's the segment that's best known for Kevlar. It's the material that goes on bulletproof vests and it's uh, it's used in other applications. So that business unit is being grouped in with several other unrelated businesses like enzymes and food ingredients that arguably shouldn't belong together. You know, that business alone is a $3 billion in revenue business with 700 million in profits. And that could easily be its own thing. Maybe it will be at some point in the uh, distant future. It's so interesting that these companies, you just smashed these two companies together yeah. like a year ago. Yeah. And now it's and now it's time to break it up. Like where's where's value creation? And everyone has their own story about how each transaction creates value. How's this different than anything else that they've done in the past? Yeah. So the logic here is um these these two huge companies, they merged last year to gain scale in various businesses that they had in common. And the idea is like sometime early to mid next year, the combined bent entity is being spun off into three separate businesses that reflect those combined scale benefits. So so basically here's what it is, you know, they combine their agriculture technology businesses. They're calling that Corteva or Crativa. And then they merge their relatively capital intensive hydrocarbon based plastics business into a second business called um I'm using the word business a lot, aren't I? Uh, into, a, into a second entity called uh, Material Sciences. And so that's the uh, new Dow Chemical. Right. And then you have this third business, uh, Specialty Products, the new DuPont, which is sort of a hodgepodge of various businesses with high R&D content, relatively low cyclicality. So there, there is kind of value added to bringing Dow and DuPont together from last year. Yeah. You know, you do combine the, the two ad, ag businesses into Corteva. And so... Now that it's being spun off, there's kind of value that can be had in there. I think they're they're expecting to extract some synergies from that, right? Yeah. So there's there's pretty significant cost synergies, and then there there's some strategic value to joining these. So you can say that uh, on the agriculture side, they can join their germplasm pools and create a richer variety of different traits for their um, genetically modified seeds, and then on the uh, plastics business, you know, a lot of that's like hydrocarbon based feedstock costs that they can get procurement leverage on. Sure. The third one just seemed like more of a, like a grab bag of stuff that didn't fit into like the other, the other two areas. It's like so specialty, right? Like, I guess that's the name of it, but it's like, it's so like these like very unique um, and distinct businesses. You're right. Like they don't really make sense to be together. Yeah. I mean, I think as as you said, there's a lot of R&D there generally like high multiples ascribed to those businesses, but it's just so much harder to analyze because I, I guess like um, they're just not as large. I mean, with the ag business, you can look at Monsanto and really kind of understand how that industry works, but it's a little bit harder yeah. with that, that third bucket. You know, I, I don't normally value stuff on comps or, or some of the parts, but in this case, I think it makes sense because there's, you know, a clear catalyst on the horizon. Yeah. So these businesses are being separated and when they are, they should individually trade close to their respective comps. 
or you know approximate to their respective comps. And so, you know, on the surface, it looks like there could be a nice sum of the parts here. Dow Dupont today trades at a little over eight times EBITDA. If you include all the cost synergies, so that's three billion dollars run rate in year two. It's maybe more like seven times. And if you include pensions, maybe you want to increase those multiples by just under a turn. If you think about it, really only one of those three spun off businesses deserves to trade at seven or eight times, and that's the material sciences business or the new Dow Chemical. The other two spun off entities, so that's agriculture and especially products, they they make up maybe just like under half of the consolidated seg- segment EBITDA, and those should arguably trade at higher multiples, right? Than than seven or eight times certainly, right? And so, you know, those those two businesses are, are getting this depressed eight times multiple for the time being while they're still smuggled under this conglomerate structure. So, yeah, I mean, there's a there's an opportunity to unlock value, <laughs> as they say. Yeah. So I think you yeah. and I talked about this briefly before. And, you know, so you got, you got what do you say, $3 billion of, of synergy target? Yeah. I guess the question is, like, how much of that or what percentage of, of revenue is that? And, like, how does that compare to some of the cyclicality that you've seen, you know, over the last you know decade? In, in the ag and the um, hydrocarbon business, if you get the ti- if you get the cycle wrong, can you just get crushed? And like, who cares about that syner- that synergy target if it all just you know gets eaten away by whatever macro environment you're in? For the most part, Dow's businesses go up and down with the economic cycle, and their pricing flexes with input costs. There is like all kinds of innovation going on in, in these business lines, no doubt. But I mean, it, it just seems like the impact of any one innovation on on growth is pretty marginal. And so boring stuff like cost discipline or ensuring a reliable and low cost supply of feedstock, those seem like more important factors. I mean, on the hydrocarbon business, it's all dependent upon what net gas is in the United States. And I guess also like what capacity additions are going to look like, which are kind of out of Dow's hands, right? But I I guess kind of like going back to my point, just on synergies versus the cycle, I guess one way one way to think about it, or, you know, I'm sure that most, I think most investors and probably like the, the right way to think about it is to look, look at like a normalized earning level, earnings level and kind of factor that into your um, valuation methodology. And so I guess the argument to be made then is that by bringing down DuPont together, by combining the the relevant segments together, you're, you're able to extract synergies and therefore create a higher um, margin profile through the cycle of the new business. Yeah, right. There are scale advantages like procurement yeah, scale. Yeah, exactly. And so that's a and that's like a tangible, sustainable advantage over time, right? They have a cost advantage over other peers by virtue of being yeah. more integrated. Um, and then obviously when you can bring two huge companies together, you can you can, you know, get um, procurement savings. Yeah. So I think just through the cycle, they're, they're just trying to get that relative cost advantage. Hey, hey, dude, this is kind of like a side question, but like, um, uh-huh. all right. So like when looking at cyclical businesses, how do you typically look at valuation? I mean, you know, you can look at like LTM earnings or like forecast earnings, but uh, you know, you know, those really aren't sustainable. And so, yeah. So I guess like the right way to say is like, okay, if I'm going to hold this through the cycle, look at, let's say earnings over the next 10 years and then discount that back. But I guess like most people, I don't know. I don't know if people really do it that way instead of just saying like, you know, what's the momentum in this industry and like a near term outlook. You know, the question is like, if you looked at them on a normalized basis, they might be cheap still, but you still have this like negative near term outlook. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I, I really balance. That. I don't know. I just try to think about what a like normalized return on capital would be given sort of the 
the qualitative attributes of this business. Yeah. But if you think about like a business like this, it's they have low cost advantages, they have scale in, in R&D and some other areas. Um, so, you know, they're at least earning their cost of capital. So I don't know, you're thinking like through the cycle, they might be able to earn maybe like a low teens type of return on capital. Sure. I, you're talking about on the materials business. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess like that's probably that's probably right. You look at um, return on capital and determine. I actually like. I mean, most people don't look at this metric, but I like to look at enterprise value to um, invested capital. Yeah. Just to determine, just to say, like, okay, if I had to replicate this business today, am I paying a premium or not? And so, you know, that kind of relates to your return on capital analysis, where you can say, you know, are you earning above or below your cost of capital? And so, if so, should I pay? Should I pay at an EV above or below? what you've already invested. If you right? look at their returns on, on capital um, over time, they, they really haven't done mm-hmm. so well. Even as their margin profiles have, have benefited. Dow Chemical has been a big beneficiary, obviously, of low natural gas costs, but, but that hasn't translated into, into meaningful return on capital improvement. So, so I listened to the, I think it was the new, yeah, it was the new Dow presentation. Uh-huh. Um, it was like an hour or something. And he made this really good point where it's like, you know, the ag business is this super long cycle yeah. business where you're, make, you're making capital decisions for, you know, the next decade. Yeah. And you may not know whether you're right or wrong until like five, six or seven years into yeah. it. Whereas like he looks at like, let's say the, the electronics business, which is super short cycle, like three years. And so it's, you know, making those um, investment decisions is really difficult when you're dealing with like those two disparate profiles. And so that just speaks to the idea that there's, there are valid, there are very valid reasons to separate these entities. Or another way I was like thinking about this was, you know, you, if you look at DuPont, you know, DuPont has like these new enzymes that they use in laundry detergent that makes the detergent clean just as well in cold water as it does in hot water. And I mean, it's a, it's a small innovation that sums up to big energy savings when multiplied across, you know, millions and millions of people. But, you know, how big of an impact does that really have to DuPont's overall growth profile? You know, something like that might just get swept away in the ag cycle, which seems a little bit ridiculous, you know? And so like separating these different sorts of businesses might help showcase the impact of of these innovations. And also, I mean, obviously everyone talks about incentives, but like, you know, that's right. If you're the guy who developed that, you want to have some sort of recognition of what you've done. And it's kind of hard to do that when it's, you know, you're a hundred billion dollar company. Yeah. And then they got this, um, you know, apparently kick-ass CEO, Ed Breen, who guided Tyco through its breakup, created a lot of value there and is spearheading the effort here. So, so dude, um, so you know a lot more about this than I do. What do you, um, I kind of think this Corteva could be interesting once it comes out. Like, yeah, like that's probably, I mean, the specialty business seems like, you know, it's going to get a high multiple. People are going to expect it to get sold. The hydrocarbon business is like very commoditized in my opinion. So I'm like, it's just not really interesting for me. But, um, but this ag business is like very good, you know, like number two player in a basically um, an oligopoly. Right. And you're also buying, you're also buying in at like a cyclical low. And so like, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. My, my thought on it is, um, so there, there's like two parts of that business. There's like the seeds business, the genetically modified seeds, and then there's the crop protection. Right. Um, the crop protection business, I'm, I'm just talking about chemicals. It's the shit that you spray to kill um, weeds and, and that kind of stuff. And that strikes me as a less good business than the seeds business. There's a lot of like IP, R&D. 
mm-hmm. and IP that goes into developing genetically modified traits. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily as true on the chemical side. Uh, in fact, crop okay. protection chemicals, there's a lot of generic competition. Interesting. But basically, M- Monsanto is is essentially entirely the seeds business. I mean, they get like 90% of their profits from seeds. And that's not necessarily true. I mean, that's yeah. not true at Corteva. Corteva, it's I think it's more of a like a 60-40 mix, 60% seeds, 40% crop. And, and even within the seeds itself. And so, yes, Monsanto and DuPont are the top two players, but... Monsanto is more dominant than it appears because they license, Monsanto licenses its traits to all its competitors, including yeah. DuPont. So DuPont is often, they're paying, they're paying royalties and they're, yeah. and, and they're stacking their own traits on top of Monsanto's. And so I think that- That was actually a question. I was going to ask you yeah. that. I mean, like, cause I know someone asked that on the call on this like um, investor day. It's like, how much are you paying in royalty? Like, are you going to be a net? Cause um, Corteva will- um, I guess also get royalty payments from their IP, and so yes. the, so the, the question is like, how much are are you a net receiver or payer of royalties? And I don't I don't know if they were super clear on that answer. I don't no, know. No, they weren't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's not it's not clear basically. And Monsanto doesn't disclose how much it gets in royalty payments. But you think Monsanto like Monsanto pay, basically only receives royalties? They've got all the IP, or it's it's very very disproportionately weighted to, towards receipts. Because like, yeah, like 80 or 90% of the, the corn that's planted in the US has like a Monsanto trait in it. Like they're, they're dominant. So like, here's another point I, w- I would just bring up is that the biotech industry, it's a, it's a really young industry and these patents last for like 20 years. And so we have, we don't really have like a good yeah. example of what the seeds business looks like when like the patents expire, except for the fact that Monsanto's key patent, the Roundup Ready, that thing expired like in 2014 or 15. And so far, it just has had no impact on on their business because it sounds like what they, they've been able to do is just sell Roundup Ready 2, like the second version, and farmers are just switching into that and and not even considering the generic version of Roundup Ready 1. Dude. I, I don't think that Corteva is as good a business as Monsanto. I think it deserves like a discount. So the, so Monsanto was bought by Bayer for- I think like 13 times, right? I, I, I see 16 oh, times. 16? Okay. And, yeah. Yeah. and then after after synergies, it was more like 12 and a half okay. times. Yeah. But that was also, I mean, that was also an acquisition price. So you got a premium. Right? Yeah. yeah. So exactly. like after synergies, yeah. it was 13 times or 12 and a half times you said? Yeah. So that 12 and a half times is probably, that's sharing part of the synergies with the buyer, part of the synergies with the seller. Yeah. Um, and so- yeah, I think I, I yeah, I'd assume it'd be something below 12 and a half times. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. So I mean with these mega businesses, you know, obviously it's so hard to analyze all of their individual um business lines. If you think about it, that probably keeps a lot of people on the sidelines. They're just like, you know, too hard bucket, right? And so that could be a reason for this being at a discount and that could be just part of the natural re-rating that you see um once the spin happens is like Oh, okay. I'll look at um, Corteva because it's now easier to analyze. Or a guy who specializes in the in the hydrocarbon business and just being like, I know this industry. You know, I can see what the value of this is. Right? Yeah. I sometimes feel, especially when I'm looking at these huge, complicated companies, very far away from the truth. I guess that's why you look at primarily small caps, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I think it kind of it kind of brings me into um, you know another name, which. I think we had talked about before. Um, I was supposed to talk about it last time, but but Rocky. So I came across Rocky last year. Um, I think I found it through a screen, just on a, on a valuation screen, and you know, it kind of stood out as one of the rare 
you know, like real companies that you'll see? Their, their main businesses, they're, so they're selling, remind me, like predominantly footwear, like work footwear. Yeah, into, that's right. Into so employers. their main business is, um, you know, it's, it's work boots essentially. So yeah, right. it's, it's not really fashionable stuff. It's stuff that's used more for function. So um, it can have like, like metal tarsal um, guards or steel toes. Um, that employees have to use to protect themselves. Yeah, when you were telling me you were going to look at this, I, I took a quick look at it. And yeah, I mean, it seemed very much under the radar. I think there was like one sell side shop, Boo Radley, that covered it. And then I was just like taking a quick scan at, at the numbers. And it just looked like, you know, when I did a high level historical look back over the last decade, like high single returns on tangible capital, sales margins, EBITDA profits, basically flat. But I know that doesn't like tell the whole story there. So yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot of moving parts with this thing. And so I guess part of it is they've done this like kind of ill-fated acquisition of a company called Creative Recreation, which moved them into the fashion segment. And obviously for a company that's headquartered in, I think it's Ohio, like that's, uh-huh. that's kind of outside of their ballywick. So that's part of it. You know, another part is that, you know, a bunch of their employees are just kind of in oil and gas regions. And so in like 20, I think it was like 2015, you saw earnings tick down just as that segment had some weakness. And then, and then also like they did some like kind of white label product for, for um, a distributor and they lost that business. And so you saw just kind of revenues underperform over the 15, 16 time period. But what I, what I, what I liked about it was, you know, they got a new CEO in who put in immediately put in some cost cutting initiatives. They had also started building out this initiative called Lehigh Outfitters. So this business is it's a little bit more um, it's it's really a good idea. Basically, it's moving them down um, or upstream in the value chain. So instead of just being you know making and selling boots through um, third party distributors, what they're doing is they're going to their customers and they're creating specific websites for that customer where they could have their boots listed, obviously at the top. But as well, also third-party boots that you know they would get a cut on. It's a super efficient model. So, um, you know, they used to what they used to do is they would put boots on a truck and send it out and do sales that way. And so, yeah. all of a sudden, now sales are a lot more capital efficient. And then also, it just helps them kind of gain market share, so they can get you know a slice of the revenue that they wouldn't have otherwise gotten. Yeah, that's interesting. So, I mean, basically, it sounds like the idea is you know these websites reduce the search cost of finding the right shoe. So. You know, if your if your employer mandates you wear a shoe with these with exactly these specs, you know, instead of rummaging around for that shoe at various retailers, you can just go onto this website knowing that any shoe you see on that site will meet that criteria. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So that's like the value to the employee, and then the value to the employer is that he knows that all his employees are shoe compliant. And then Rocky, I guess, gets like a um, like a stickier relationship with with the employer. Yeah. No, that, that's exactly right. So it's like a pretty good business. And when I invested in this thing, to me, like, you know, I, I heard about this and it, it just kind of went into the back pocket as like, oh, that's a potential upside down the road. Because, you know, I think I was buying this thing below tangible book value. And the, the majority of book value is inventory, which, you know, it's, it, there's really no like fashion obsolescence risk with this. Yeah. I felt kind of like super strong downside protection. And then also you had these like distinct events that had hurt prior year earnings. So you had, you know, the loss of this white label product, you had, you had like the downside, or it was like a a low in the oil and gas industry. You know, also they had won this government contract. So like they've they've got this military business line, which is a smaller part of the business. Um, It's basically RFPs for the US military. And that had basic, I think it had like quadrupled in size. And so 
part of that, they had to greatly expand their manufacturing capacity in Puerto Rico. And in doing so, you just saw margins take a huge hit just as there was like kind of ramp up initiative, ramp up issues. And also you had like Hurricane Maria during that time period. Yeah. And so you had these like really distinct events that are easy to explain. And, you know, you just put that in, you just kind of back that out of historical numbers. You put in the cost cutting initiatives. You know, at the time, this thing was just at a super attractive free cash flow multiple. And so do you think like most of that um, value has already been realized? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm not, I'm not involved in the company anymore. I mean, at this price, value's pretty much been extracted here. And I guess the other thing that, you know, you kind of have some other issues. So um, what's happening in that military business is that the government has started prioritizing small manufacturers. And so the likelihood is that that, mes- that business goes to zero over the next like year and a half as their existing contracts yeah. run out. And it kind of goes back to that point I was making before about um, with these small companies, even though you can have this information that like hits you in the face and it's so obvious if you just like read the reports and put it into your model, I feel like when the numbers actually are reported, sometimes, you know, there's a, there's a cohort of investors who just don't realize that. And so I am afraid that over the next year and a half, as that military business goes away, there's going to be people who are not aware of that and sell the stock on that news. Mm-hmm. On the, on the website initiative, that's something that still has yet to play out, right? I mean, do you think that that can be yeah. um, like a meaningful profit generator for these company, for this company at some point? I think that is a good business. I mean, they've already signed up some, some big customers. So they've got like Carnival Cruise, Pepsi, Whirlpool, um, Waste Management. So like they've got big guys signed up to this already. I guess part of it is though that you're just kind of moving you're moving your sales from third-party distributors to in-house. And so, right. yes, margins are going to go... It'll be a margin benefit, but you're not like... The actual incremental revenue that they're getting, I don't know how material it is. Right, right. So right. it's like a margin benefit and also a defensibility attribute that... It makes it, yeah. So yeah, may, maybe it's not yes. right to think about this as a call option, but more just as more of, more of a moat, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And, I feel, and it kind of goes back again to just like... A nascent moat. With some of these small... No, yeah, that's right. And it goes, but it goes back to like, I guess, the strategy on how to um, just strategy around investing for me, like uh-huh. with, with some of these names, you know, I bought the stock. I thought that people completely undervalued the um, like the quality of the business. And I'm not saying that at this price, the business is overvalued or isn't attractive, but I just feel like pe- people are going to focus on like near term numbers more than they will on qualitative aspects of, of what business quality looks like. Got it. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, totally. And so that's kind of like why I'm on the sideline. Like, so like I'd love to be involved again, but I, I just want to kind of have a little bit more a more attractive. What, at what valuation do you think it might be worth diving into? We don't we don't have to include this part in the podcast. I'm just curious, dude. Is that like six and a half times EBITDA? Um, the 800 pound gorilla uh, Wolverine trades at like 15 times EBITDA, but that doesn't really make sense. A better way to look at it is just like on free cash flow multiple. Uh-huh. So like it's 11 times free cash flow, which is attractive. But you're also talking about like a very small business that can get pushed around. And so I think I would say like in a single single digit free cash flow multiple, it could be more interesting. It's trading at like 1.5 times tangible invested capital, EV to tangible invested capital. At one time, that's 17 bucks. But yeah, you want to move into this uh, third segment here? Yeah. Well, uh, so what, was our, what were our topics? Let, let me pull up this email. I'm trying to find this email that we had. because. Yeah. One, one clarification I did want to make here. So I was talking about SaaS valuations last time. So basically, I think it's easy to fall into this trap where, you know, because you know your numbers, you think you have an explanation. 
So like if you ask a lot of SaaS investors, you know, why they like a certain stock, they they might say something like, oh, you know, their their LTV to CAC is six, their bookings are growing across cohorts with every passing yeah. quarter, margins are expanding. And all that is great, but like those are statistics, right? Those aren't explanations. And they might be symptoms of a moat, but unless you can explain what the moat is, you you really don't have like a solid basis for for owning the stock. So I mean if you if you buy a stock based primarily on strong KPIs, then you know, if you're being intellectually honest, then you basically have to sell the stock as soon as those metrics weaken or disappoint. And so just And it's also it's also like, you know, especially when you're talking about some of these companies that have like two or three percent churn, you know, they haven't been in business for thirty years. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like um you're assuming that that's going to persist over the next 30 years. It's like yeah. You, and you so there, know. there does seem to be this assumption that they're still going to be around. Exactly. Like they're the, the, like the terminal value is just rock solid. People seem to be looking at EV to revs, Y axis revenue growth on X or whatever, and then plotting the dots. It just seems like people are trading on like KPI momentum and, and less on like core fundamentals. I think like the SAS, if you call it, call it an industry, like it's, it's so vast, right? Like it touches so many different businesses. You have so many different types of products. And so yeah. I guess just to like make things simpler for our, um, you know, simple brains to kind of assume it's just like, or analyze, it's like, you can just kind of boil it down to some of the numbers. Um, yeah. But you, I mean, you're right at the end of the day, like the, I guess the qualitative stuff are just going to have a lot more impact on like long-term value creation. I think people don't like hearing this, but like, I also feel like there's a little bit of value, like just trusting historic performance. Trusting historic performance and also trusting like current financials. So like looking at returns on investment and assuming that they're doing something similar, obviously like you want to do your best to understand like kind of like what's going on near term, but like, yeah, I don't know, to a certain extent, the numbers don't lie. And you look at like um, comp trends, you look at, you know, initiatives and you can like think just like logically, like, does that make sense? Whatever it is and see like whether things are resonating. Yeah, I mean, there there is this sort of back and forth that has to happen between the story, and you want the like data points over time to validate that story. But the problem with placing your faith solely in the metrics that you see is that a they're inherently backward looking, right? Yes, but yeah. b you're you're never going to be able to add to that position when those metrics weaken because you won't have there. There's not going to be some kind of like core underlying moat that you have confidence in. You're just looking at it and you're saying but if the right metrics weaken and you understand kind of like how the company is positioned and say like things are cyclical or things may it's silly to look at it like any given quarter yeah yeah but that's what i mean even even what you just said right there is saying that you have some kind of understanding of how the company is advantaged that yes, goes beyond yes, the metrics yeah. no there's a balance and, yeah. and so and it, yeah it does go to this question of like how many layers of why do you get into like so if i if I were to say, well, I own this low-cost airline because it trades at 10 times earnings and its returns on capital have been this over time, you might ask, well, why have their returns on capital been that? And I might say, well, because they're the low-cost provider and they have a cost-advantage cost structure, right? Yeah. And then you might say, well, why is that? And then that requires another layer of explanation that talks about, I don't know, some self-reinforcing advantages between passenger traffic and and landing fees and, and whatnot. You want to go at least like one or two layers down Yeah, no. You, in this you, question, you right? <laughs> well, you can't just, I mean, like the simplest thing is just saying like, okay, I, I own this because it's an attractive multiple, right? Yeah, exactly. Or or I own this because it's it's bookings, the their bookings grew by 40% last quarter. There's an opportunity cost to doing too much research on something. You know, there's, yeah. first of all, there's like timing aspects where it's like, 
you know, you might miss an opportunity because you're like researching something for a few months and it just passes you by. Sometimes there's near-term events and like you have to capitalize on that. Um, it goes to balancing like, you know, opportunity, risk return versus like confidence in that. The point is like, I think that it goes to like also being willing to accept that you're wrong and to be willing to accept that you're going to lose money. And so sometimes I think it's okay to make an investment with where you've done as much research as you can at that point, but for whatever reason, you have to move quick. And and with the understanding that your 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 confidence in that isn't as high as it could be if you had more time, that's just part of the nature of what we do. And so like you have to have the willingness to be like, you know, I made this decision and it didn't work out and I lost money. And I think sometimes people are a little bit too afraid to to do that because, and at least so they're just like missing out on opportunities. All right. Good shit. I think we got enough material here for a podcast, right? Yeah. Hey, so how do you think all that was? I mean, we just did 40. 40- I thought that was smooth as silk. <laughs> you were on fire right there at the end. All right. So thanks everyone for listening. You can find our contact information in the show notes. If you like the podcast, don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. I don't know if we're going to do another one of these before the new year. So if we don't, happy holidays.